Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. Now, my guest today is Gavin Poole, a former RAF officer flying high at the helm of Here East, the Olympic Park home to a vibrant mix of innovators, visionaries, and like-minded locals, all looking to challenge the status quo. Today's Changemaker story is about the ambition to make it and make it big the inspiration of game-changing innovations, and the mission to push boundaries. Gavin Poole from Air Force to AI, welcome to Changemakers. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, let's start with this aircraft carrier of innovation that you've got here, Ease. Give us the sense. I mean, you, you, you realize I'm going to sort of push this Air Force this, uh, sort of idea to its full extent, but give us a sense of here, Ease. I detect the theme already, Michael. Yeah, so here East is 1.2 million square feet of real estate on the Olympic Park. It was the home of all the TV studios and all the journalists and media and press that reported London 2012 to the world. It's by virtue of it being the global hub of the Olympic broadcast movement for that period of time, it is huge. And as my first foray into real estate, I probably didn't really appreciate just how big it is compared to many other developments you get in London. 27 football pitches. It's immense. Six aircraft, 747s side by side, wingtip to wingtip in the main building. Canary Wharf, one Canada Square, lie on its side and you still have 60 meter clearance at the end. It's a ground scraper in the big building and then the office building where Innovation Centre Plexal sits. Um, is, you know, probably still huge, 360,000 square foot, but dwarfed by the large broadcast center. So so I was right, the aircraft carrier of innovation spaces. I mean, can you name the place where you would meet Robbie Williams, Fern Cotton, Gary Lineker, find a broadcasting studio, three universities, and a host of startup companies sitting side by side? Can Can you name that place? Yep, our baby called Here East. This is what we've built. This is what we've built. Th- th- that's the vibe, right? I mean, it's it's an, a completely unique space. Give us a sense of what goes on day by day when it's that eclectic. Sure. So we, we call it, I mean, particularly if you walk down the yard and we say it's like the, the, the most interesting 280 metres in London that you'll find is you move from universities looking at international relations, um, entrepreneurships in technology, digital media and marketing, through to brand new challenger brands as they were in 2013 when they launched BT Sport with all of their content, world leading dance and choreography, bringing together technology, artificial intelligence and dancers under the remit and guidance of, of Wayne McGregor. We have Matches Fashion and all of their creativity Uh, and their support to micro brands at the very high end, globally coming through their platform, UCL, Robotics Institute, Da Vinci Robotics Surgeons, Ford Mobility, looking at the future mobility in our urban environments. Uh, We have Sega, the football manager team is Sports Interactive. I mean, it's diverse what we have here. Um, Universities who are creating the next generation of esports leaders. We have universities who are looking at performance and dance. And then in our innovation center, you know, we've got this rich over 124 companies, over 72 businesses in cybersecurity accelerated, over 150 million pounds raised in the last two years to support the growth of those businesses in cyber. I mean, the chat at the bar must be amazing. It's it's it is a it is a fun place, you know. And as we emerge out of these difficult times, which we've been through for the past five months, literally today, 
uh, I have had a number of conversations that have been around the site and people saying, this week feels like the week that Britain has come back. This is the week that here East has got vibrant again. Everybody is back. We've got activation plans. We've got people working up their offices as people have put the children back into school and are returning to the offices. We've got the universities preparing to receive a thousand students on site from the 21st of September onwards. So the lifeblood is back into I mean, it is. Before we get into the future, just let's go back to the past because you've been You've been there from the get-go. You've been there from when this was just a, a concept, a architect's drawing. Tell us about the first time you saw Here East and what did you think? Well, I mean, the first time we saw Here East is when we designed it. But the first time we saw the buildings uh, was in 2012, before the Games, when we were tendering for it. And we had this wacky idea on two sides of A4 about creating this technology campus for the creative industries and technology startups in this part of the world. And I remember driving past it on the A12 and the chap I was with said, it's big, isn't it? I went past going, yeah, it's pretty big. But for my military days, I was used to aircraft hangars. And you know, th these, this is just not on, an uncommon size of- So you saw potential. Yeah, but this is not an uncommon size of buildings that I was used to over 20 plus years in the military of operating out of, you know, either as an aircraft carrier, as you said, or in the large hangars or, you know, driving past a hangar in San, um, San Diego or San Jose, which literally was three times the size of this. So for me, yeah, it's big. And we've had a lot of fun on it, but this was the first time I saw it. And then how do you take something of this scale? And I used to be really offended when people say, oh, it's just a shed. You know, in property terminology, this is what they thought it was, corrugated sheet shed. And we've turned it into something which is now multi-award winning for its design, multi-award winning for its sustainability, multi-award winning for the impact which is now being delivered through it into the wider community. And is it, do you think, the riposte to those that say Britain can't do anything big or at scale anymore in terms of the the world stage? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, for us, you know, we're not saying that this is a private sector venture, um, but it's a limited public-private partnership because our landowner is a, an arm's length body from City Hall, the London Legacy Development Corporation. But we have a super long lease on it, which means then we've got the freedom to invest and do as we want without too many shackles of the public sector, which set up the conditions and the framework which allows the private sector to operate, which is what we always talk about, the, the regulatory environment which we work in in London and the UK to allow growth. But we can demonstrate that if you let loose the private sector and get us to invest the finances in there and allow us to take the bold steps, we can deliver and we can deliver fast. And I think that's for us is something which this is what this, this showcases. What frustrates us is when we look at other opportunities now and we want to say, let's go and replicate any tied up in government OJU process or competitive tenders. And you go, it's stripping all the value out from day one. Now, we did do a tender. And at the time, as newbies into this world, we, we didn't really appreciate just how well LLDC, as they are now called, had set up that process. It was slick. It was fast. It was dynamic. The target was to get it sorted before the opening ceremony. And we nailed it. We nailed it in five months, not, as we often see, 18 months to two years. Right. And, and has, it, has it now maxed out? I mean, is, is it as big as it's going to get? 
No, we're, we're about 1.2 million square feet. For those in probably well know, it's a million square feet of space which we can let. The rest of it is common areas and um, reception areas and things that we offer up as part of being a tenant here. Uh, and, you know, we, we've let just over 75%, 25% to go. So, you know, quarter million square feet to go. But already we're looking to the future and we're looking at where we can extend our footprint on site, looking at how we can extend um, some of the buildings and how we can create more space. Because what we believe is, you know, the Legacy was a 20-year project. We're eight years in since 2012, another 12 to go. And our job's not done. Now, we've got so much interest in coming to here east now more than we've had in the last two years in the last three months it's it's a hotbed of activity at the moment which kind of we're running out of space and we need to protect ourselves in the future and say look we can bring more exciting businesses we can bring more global businesses who want to come to london we can bring more of the startup communities here we can even put more university space in here and create a space where it's probably five or six thousand people we can take it to over ten thousand people on site so, so this is the moment in jaws where he goes we're going to need a bigger boat we're going to need a bigger boat and we have a plan I mean, we're going to talk about that plan because, you know, what they always say is that, what is it that every plan is only as good as its first contact with the enemy? Well, I mean, you know, there, there is this this issue that this has been the year where we have been in contact with with the enemy, which is the virus, which you referred to before. I mean, I always think about here, East, whenever you're there, is that it's this kind of glimpse into the future, this sense of actually what might come. What do you what do you and the future innovators make of a year like this that has come so left field, such a year of change? I mean, what are the lessons in terms of that period of lockdown that you referred to and indeed where you hope it goes from here? So for me, one of the key, and this comes no surprise as a, you know, an ex-military man, senior officer running teams around the world for over 20 years, is you're only as good as the team that you build. And we're incredibly fortunate here that I've got an amazing team that immediately we were looking at what was going on around the world. We were talking to our own customers, global businesses like Ford, Sega, BT, looking at our universities who have got a lot of international students. And we were so back in February, we were engaging this going, OK, this is this is interesting. We need to start planning. We need to start planning about how do we protect ourselves because whatever happens, we need to keep on operating. There are businesses here who have mission critical features on this site. So therefore we need to split ourselves into shifts. We need to make sure we adopt a safe and secure model. And we did all of that uh, risk mitigation planning way up front. So as soon as we'd entered into lockdown, we'd already been operating at reduced manning on site on a rotor period. So we felt we were pretty safe to see th ourselves through this. We had the worries, we had the people early on who were um, getting the, the symptoms of the virus and we had the ability to take out a shift to be able to bring in another one already. So we made it, our resilience was already in place. And that was because we had a fantastic team. And immediately we were there to think, okay, let's think customer first, what do they want? Okay, there's gonna be a real problem here about how are people gonna think about how they're gonna to return to a multi-let campus. So make sure we had one-way systems. How do we do all of the cleaning? What cleaning regimes? What advice can we give them? And it all comes down to having the right people in the right jobs who you know you can trust just to get on because there were so many lines of activity. And beneath that, there was still business as usual. 
there was still the ability to say, look, I've got a quarter million square foot here. And the growth that we saw in some of our online digital platforms, some of the technology companies, particularly in the entertainment, uh, health, well-being and fitness area have just grown exponential, rapidly going into fundraising, rapidly looking at more space, looking at requiring more studio space. And we had to be able to be able to get a campus to actually facilitate that, doing tours on Zoom, face-to-face, -face, you know, literally over a camera, walking them through spaces. This could be how you could grow. You are one of life's great optimists. I know this because I've, I've heard you and you are positive and it comes across. Have there been any, has this, this period where we've all been forced to reflect, I mean, has the optimist been challenged at any point in terms of, the future we now face? Or, or actually, do you think this is a foe to vanquish and we're, we're well on the way? No, there, there's been some, you know, personally, there's been some dark days where you look at it and I say, I built with a team here an amazing campus. And on March the 12th, we had four and a half thousand people on site. And on the 1st of April, I had 63. Mm. It was that, in fact, actually it was a week later for March 12th, 63 people on site. And it was like, oh my, how is this going to play out? But I just kept on trusting the process to say, they will come back. This is temporary. We will not be defeated by a virus as frightening as it is and as concerning as it is. We will come through this. I'm someone who, you know, people look at me outwardly and go, oh, okay, this is a person who thrives on change, he thrives on challenge, he loves building things, he's always the optimist. But also there's an element of me which is like, I quite liked the way that we were before. <laughs> and it's quite unnerving being working from home all the time and not being able to gather people in the marketing suite lounge area over coffee, you know, you and I are very similar. We're very personable people and we, we thrive off being with others, around others. And, and that would be taken apart from through a screen. And that was quite challenging as someone who is a social extrovert. You know, I was trying to convince myself that this is easy. I could become an introvert. It's fine. It's okay. Zoom, Zoom is fine. Yeah. And, and ultimately it's not. So there were some pretty dark days. But ultimately also resilience matters in moments like this and I'm wondering to what degree have your other life experiences that I'd like to move on to now impacted on your worldview in terms of the way you see these challenging moments has that helped do you think uh, I, I think so because a lot of this was you know a lot of people say it's out of our control it's an enemy you can't see no but there's a lot of things that you could do to protect yourselves whereas you know, with situations and circumstances that we've been in, either myself or my colleagues and peers in the military have been in, um, there are circumstances which they didn't have control over and certainly did not come home, um, whether they were under my command or whether they were fellow commanders who I knew very well who didn't come back from Afghanistan. So for me, you know, at least we weren't getting shot at at least we were able to support people. At least we were able to do our bit to try and get ourselves through that. So from so those, a strong dose of perspective. Yeah, very much so. And I think that was something to, to keep an eye on. Um, and I have a, you know, from a personal point, I have a 
formidable wife who keeps me straight, who's also ex-military. And in our house, we ran into protocol world, protocol, protocol, protocol. And that Drop helped. and give me 50, Gavin. I mean, that's, 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 that. Now, listen, the evening standard. I mean, I have, to, I have to quote this. I mean, you must have been gutted when they wrote this. That the, It described you as the curator of this motley mix as a tall, clipped ex-military man with a touch of Daniel Craig in his appearance. I mean, I mean that must have caused you nightmares, wouldn't it? Horrendous, because um, when people saw that, particularly all the guys in the MOD who still know me, and then particularly when it went on Instagram and on Twitter, the humour and black humour in the military runs riot at that point, and I'm still getting it from... Well, I thought the curator, I mean, it could either become C as a new sort of like moniker for a sort of like, you know, sort of Bond ally, or the curator could be the next Bond villain. I mean, I could see the curator in his lair at Here East thinking about this. I mean, I'll sort of like probably leave it there. But I mean, you know, I, I could see that as the next chapter. But but obviously, you know, let's forget commanders and let's move to wing commanders because, I mean, that was that was uh, your role um, in the RAF from watching tank busters in Cambridge to actually serving in the 2003 Iraq war. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for the vignettes of the things that make you the person that you are today. So very sort of, you know, an observation on, on the military. We spoke quite a bit about it, but in terms of what you think the kind of the output has been for the Gavin of today. So it's, it's, it's more about the experiences when I came through the military and the people who worked for me. Um, and also the way that um, I was provided opportunities as I came through the military by the leaders that, that I served in my time as well. You know, I haven't always been at this age and I wasn't always a wing commander. I joined in the ranks literally as an apprentice. And, you know, I didn't always get it right. So I was always given not only a second chance, third, fourth and fifth chance. Now, I was the person who was always find a way of how not to do something. Um, so, you know, ended up getting into all sorts of fun and games and trouble in the past. But I believe that this is second chance element of the military is something which enables people to grow. It also gives people the opportunity. You know, I wasn't particularly good at school. I have to try and keep this brushed under the carpet for my girls who are at school now. And, uh, you know, I make fun about it, but it's not a laughing matter the way that my, probably my parents thought about my behavior at school. But the military gave me that second chance. And I, you know, I owe them a lot of credit um, to, to, you know, what I've become today through the ability for that. Well, your, your top tip to us is don't look back, don't go back, don't get a dog. Now, as a dog <laughs> lover, I'm, I'm completely offended by the third bit, but, but don't look back, don't go back. That feels like, that feels like somebody who's used to getting their kit bag, moving off, doing things, being mobile. I mean, that feels like a very military lesson, is it? But it is. I mean, you know, our world was, you know, do something two years, move on, move on, move on. So, you know, from Northern Ireland, back to nuclear weapons, back onto Harrier aircraft, onto aircraft carriers, back into nukes, Harriers, bomb disposal, um, and then a whole load of heavy weapon stuff, military planning and defense college. And so you're always moving, always making transient friendships. Some endure to this day. Others are sort of passive for a couple of years and you move on again. So there's always this moving on nature. You know, here East is the longest time I've ever done a job now, over eight and a half years since creation to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to come back to here East because I think the moving on bit, though, I just want to focus on just for one more second, because obviously you left the military and then you went to work for the quiet man, Ian Duncan Smith in the Centre for Social Justice. And 
you know, when I look at quite often, you can see a golden thread in a person's CV in terms of what takes them from one thing to the other. I mean, what takes you from, you know, top flight engineering on jump jets and all the rest of it into actually looking at the issue of social justice? So, I mean, I think the, the amount of people that served under my command is many thousands by the time I'd left. And there's something about people, particularly, you know, I had Army, Air Force, Navy, civil servants all working for me at different times. And it's trying to understand what makes people tick from different parts of the country with different backgrounds and life stories. And from that point, you suddenly move into this area about, okay, we can do regeneration in our country, but not through bricks and mortar, but through people. And if you can do regeneration, social regeneration through impacts of policies into their lives, then perhaps we wouldn't have to deal with some of the issues that we had to deal with in the military because we can try and nip it in the bud early on. And, and that led me down the path. And I'd met Ian in 2003 before we deployed. Um, he came up. He was the opposition leader. He was supporting Tony Blair in government uh, to get us to be able to go and um, prosecute the campaign that we did. And through another mutual friend, it became obvious that this was a path I wanted to go down to look at social regeneration in community. And this was a perfect place. I also understood government. I'd worked for the defence secretary. and So I get the head, but g- give me the heart, right? Because, you know, your favourite book is, or the book that changed your life is To Kill a Mockingbird, which, which is in, in of itself a story of social justice. And I guess what I'm trying to understand is that, because obviously the story of of the what you did is well told. The story of the why you did it is the one I'd like to get to the to the bottom of. It, it comes back to that second chance. You know, why should people be written off just because they make a mistake? Why should they be written off because they've fallen into addiction? Why should they be written off because they've committed a crime and have, for whatever reason, ended up um, in detention, um, and being released back from prison, why should that be held against them forever and stop them progressing? Why should someone, a young child, who for no fault of their own going through a care system, should be massively disadvantaged for their life because of something which is out of their control at birth or slightly later? And for me, that was wrong. And I think, you know, you see it now play out in the campaigns of Black Lives Matters and all the campaigns you see globally, which is people need the opportunity to speak. They need an opportunity to be heard and they need an opportunity to be supported regardless of their background. And you know, how many times do we walk past the person on the street and don't bat an eyelid, we become too blind to it? How many times do we just misunderstand the way that people are being treated um, by society and don't want to speak up about it? Now, you speak up about the things that matter most. You know, we led, when I was there, the most, I believe, one of the most transformative government bills to go through the parliament in recent history, which was the Modern Day Slavery Act, where I had a group of young men come with who'd raised some cash and we need to research this, which wasn't on our remit. And we've ended up getting on statute. And now when I do tenders and I look at bids and I look at contracts, modern day slavery is in those, it's a standard text now in all legal. And we did that. And for me, this is no, I, that was our campaign then. There's many, many more campaigns now. So there's Gavin, the activist, and Gavin, the campaigner. And 
obviously you've brought a strong element of that into these eight and a half years at Here East we've been speaking about because your the fellow interview this week is is Nana Badu, who is very much that campaigner, that grassroots campaigner through his work with Badu Sports and, and, and the Badu community. I mean, was that part of the grand plan that this wouldn't just be about technology and innovation, that there would be a strong social element? And I suppose, to what degree did the Centre for Social Justice help inform that kind of view and, and that, that sort of decision? Very much so. We were looking at this as a vehicle to do social regeneration in the area, in the city, the region, and the nation. And we saw it as a way that we could actually use it as a test bed for policies. So, so this for us, for Andrew and myself, was something which is really close to our heart. And I think for, for us, we've been able to get that balance right, whether it's opening up the social inclusion unit, having Nana Bedou, having uh, Meti Koban and his organization with us, having charities invaded with us, running programs in the wider community, social insights and work insight days, trying to have a, a program where you recruit first and we provide opportunities into local communities which didn't exist before, or showcast, showcasing to the local community, often communities which are quite difficult to engage in or communities that businesses would not normally engage in and showcasing the rich talent that's in there and showcasing to the community that there is a home for you to work and this should be a natural place for you to come to when you're leaving school, college or university to seek work. That's part of our goal. You know, we're we're still not 100% let. And we've been focusing really to try and fill up while Andrew and his team on the Innovation Centre are doing all of their great work. And I've got a team looking at community programmes. But it does feel to me that we're getting to the point where we can now really accelerate those social programmes. We can do more. As you know, we've launched our social impact reports. And it's great. We've done some really amazing things. And the number of young people working here and the number of local employed people here is fantastic. But we can do more. And we won't sit still until we know we can reach more people and get more people working here, more younger people working here, more diverse people working here. Until that's done, this project's not finished. Right. And I really do get that sense of the journey. And I think, you know, just just the last question. I mean, you know, you've mentioned that your your biggest inspiration was was the pioneering astronauts of, of, of the 60s. And of course, you know, they faced phenomenal danger in the pursuit of a goal. And I just wondered, there's a a wonderful Emerson quote that I thought about when I was reading your story. And he wrote that the right path and the easy path are are rarely the same thing. And I wondered, is that the Gavin Poole story? I I think so. I think um, you do things for the right reasons and you go off on a journey because you know it's the right thing to do. Um, I felt very much over my life um, that it was never going to be, people look at me and go, oh, very successful X-Wing commander, whatever. I I did it a very difficult way. Um, Life wasn't particularly easy um, when you look back on it. And I've always felt, you know, I haven't made life to be easy. That was something I've always felt um in me you know people who know me well know that i'm a man of faith whether it's from god or whether you don't have those belief i just felt that it's going to be a struggle my struggles are going to be different to other struggles now i read a book last night that someone gave to me about a homeless man in cheltenham and you know his struggles are completely different to mine but i definitely feel that doing the right thing means that you are going to have to 
tackle some pretty big issues. And there will be people on the way who will try and knock you. I've got lists, literally as long as your arm, of people since 2012 on this particular job and, and this project who have said it will never work. I can go all the way back, and I don't like to because I say, don't look back, don't go back. But from the age of nine being told I'll only ever be a dustman by my school teacher, you know, motivated me to go and do something else. Although my response was, if that was good enough for my grandfather, that'd be good enough for me because that's the background I come from. So for me, it's, you know, it really is, you know, go for the right thing and don't take the easy route. If you know it's the right thing to do, just get on and do it and follow your judgment. Follow your judgment. Gavin, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me. What a super, super story, super interview. And and that is indeed all we've got time for. And thanks to my guest, Gavin Poole of Here East. And what a flight path Gavin has taken us on from the jet engines of planes to the engines of future growth. And to misquote his 007 lookalike, it's left us stirred, not shaken. And for more from those with a license to thrill, do join me next time for The Changemakers.